This podcast contains adult themes and depictions of violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advice. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, Eugenia. How are you doing today? I'm very well, but I'm feeling in the mood for a murder. That's a great news because we actually have a very interesting murder in our hands today. So, welcome to A History of Evil Men, Episode 2, Heavenly Creatures. The case that we are going to unfold today is the Parker Home murder case, which took place in Christchurch the 22nd of June of 1954. So, our protagonist, or maybe the antagonist, are two teenage girls. Pauline Yvonne Parker and Juliette Marienholm, which came from very different backgrounds, yet somehow found a way to bond with each other. Pauline Parker, aka Pauline Reaper, was born the 26th of May of 1938. She was born in New Zealand in a working class family. Meanwhile, Juliette Hoon was born the 28th of October of 1938 in London, United Kingdom. The girls met in the Christchurch Girls High School when they were roughly 13 years old. And while Juliette came from an upper-class family, her father was Henry Hoon, a British scientist and physicist who took part in the project of the British atomic bomb, and she was the daughter of Hilda Hume, who was a counselor and a socialite at that time. Both girls met in the early teens and they bonded over the fact that they both had suffered from various illnesses when they were very young. Pauline Parker was diagnosed with osteomyelitis, which is a bone infection when she was approximately six years old and she got to do she got to go under some surgeries in her leg, which left her with chronic pain. Meanwhile, uh, Juliette uh, suffered from bronchitis and tuberculosis also when she was very young. And in two different occasions, she was sent by her family to South Africa and Latin America because they believed that the warm weather would be better for her recovery. Also, when she was two years old, she was in London doing the London Blitz, which was the bombing of London by the Nazis. And according to the sources, she suffered from nightmares and panic attacks. This case became the inspiration of the basis for the 1994 movie by Peter Jackson, Heavenly Creatures. Well, the movie takes as the source for its story, the diaries that Pauline Parker kept during 1953 and 1954, which we are going to use also as the sources. Nowadays, we don't have, you don't get access to the full diaries, but we can get to the trial transcripts of themselves because they've been lost. The diaries themselves, if they haven't completely decayed over time, have still been kept under lock and key by the New Zealand government as evidence and are only usually ever 
allowed to be viewed under very specific strict circumstances. So actually getting a hold of the material from the source is pretty much nigh on impossible. So the families were initially very happy about the friendship. They were both very imaginative. They were very interested in arts, literature. Pauline was said to have to have an interest in clay um, sculpting. Sculpting, and they quickly managed to develop a very close, personable friendship with each other, which soon became very close and obsessive. Obsessive, one might say. Both of the girls were, by the standard of the area, very smart and very intelligent and very imaginative. When we see, when we read the transcripts of the diary of Pauline Parker, we can say that they had a very high uh, idea of themselves and that they really thought that they were special and somehow above other people. March the 18th of 1953, Pauline would write, quote, We have decided how sad it is for other people that they cannot appreciate our genius, but we hope the book will help them to do so a little, so no one could fully appreciate us. The girls imagine a whole series of medieval fantasy war that they were writing, both of them, And later on, both of the girls would, they would take as alternative identities of people that live in that world. It is said that by Mrs. Hume, Hilda Hume, the mother of Juliet, that sometimes the girls would get so much in the character when they were doing this role play that it was actually hard to get Juliet out of the character because she was so deep into it. With many of the characters, the Girls had fleshed out their histories, their motivations, their desires, as well as the complicated relationships that these characters had with each other and their families going back several generations and forward several generations as well, um, not to mention the history and the politics of the uh, the imagined country. It's also said that The story was also full of some violence. There was war and kidnap and vendettas. And it was really impressive for the adult people that would read what they were writing. But there was something else apart from the kingdom of Borovnia that was this fictional war. There was the fourth war that was literally a different reality in which The girls, Pauline and Juliet, could actually have access. On April the 3rd of 1953, Pauline wrote on her diary, quote, Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a getaway through the clouds. We stand on the edge of the path and looked down the hill out over the bay. the bay. The Iceland looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We then realized we had the key. We now know that we are not genie as we thought. We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth war. Only about 10 people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth war. 
But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into that beautiful world which we have been lacking enough to be allowed to know of on this day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. So upon socializing and hanging around the Holmes family, we see that Pauline really, I mean, her main bond was to Juliet, but she really seemed to idolize both of her parents. She would call them heavenly people. And on her diary, she would uh, write that uh, Mrs. Hume, Hilde, would call her her foster daughter. But on May the 15th, 1953, Juliet was once again diagnosed with tuberculosis on one lung. About that, Pauline wrote, quote, Mrs. Hume told me today they had found out that Juliet has tuberculosis on one lung. Poor Julieta. It is only now I realize how fond I am of her. I nearly fainted when I heard. I had a terrible job not to cry. It would be wonderful if I could get tuberculosis too. End of quote. We see that what seemed to be a close relationship was slowly developing in a very dependent, dare I say, relationship between the two girls. On the next day, Pauline wrote... I spent a wretched night. It was a relief to see Juliet looking so well. We agree it was a great pity I had not tuberculosis too, and it would be wonderful if I could catch it. We would be in the sanitarium together and would be able to write a lot. We have decided we are the most incredible optimists. End of quote. So Pauline came out with the idea that she and Juliet would exchange letters while uh, faking or pretending to be the characters of the, um, of the story of the kingdom of Borovnia. Pauline would take the place of Charles II, the king of Borovnia, while Juliet would play as Deborah, his mistress, while she was on the sanitarium. Pauline and Juliet came from different backgrounds. Uh, Pauline came from a working-class family, her father would run a fish and chips business and her mother would rent rooms in her house as a boarding house for young students that were going to, I'm guessing, the Polytechnic of University. It's that way that she gets to know a young boy or a young man, because he was older than her, a young man called John, that she had a very brief romance and this becomes significant in the story because uh, her father found her once in bed with this boy. The young man was he was uh, he was thrown away of the house, and they started to have a more of a discipline treatment towards her because she was a young girl and she wasn't married to this guy. So I'm guessing it was quite a scandal, according to what. She writes on her diary, it was a terrible tragedy about the way that her family just took the whole issue. But on September, Juliet came out of the tuberculosis sanitarium and Pauline writes the 9th of September, quote, It was wonderful returning with Juliet. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. It should also be noted that following her parents' discovery of her 
relationship with Nicholas that they really clamped down on her social activities and she was essentially grounded and housebound when not at school and was expected to contribute to the upkeep of the boarding house under the very, very close scrutiny of her mother. It's during this time that Pauline really starts to note her descent into depression and uh, heightened anxiety before going uh, any further. On November the 2nd of 1953, Pauline wrote, quote, Today I feel thoroughly, utterly and completely depressed. I was in one of these moods in which committing suicide sounds heavenly. Close quote. If the families were initially happy to see how good they have bonded and how close they, are, they were, they have become. They were slowly getting worried about how dependent their relationship was. Basically, because of what? They suspected that the girls might have had a sexual or romantic relationship. On December, Parkers uh, take Pauline to a doctor, Dr. Bennett, which was recommended by the Holmes. And after that visit, Pauline would write that Dr. Bennett was a bloody fool. And it was this doctor, the first one to diagnose quote-unquote, that the girls were in a homosexual relationship. And I said diagnosed, quote-unquote, because homosexuality was actually considered a mental illness and sex between men was actually considered a crime in New Zealand for which you could be sent to prison and even be physically punished. I should also say that homosexuality was considered was considered a moral failing and partic- and reflected particularly badly on the upbringing of the children. But the real cause of what, uh, I mean, not the real cause, the cause of why Pauline's parents sent him to the doctor was because she was losing weight. Afterwards, uh, when we read or even listening to a interview done to Juliet being older, we discovered that Pauline was actually suffering from bulimia. She was throwing up every meal and she was losing weight. So it came a point in which Pauline's mother, Honora, would even forbid her to see the Hulm family, Juliet and also the Hulms, unless she would put on some weight. So on December the 20th of 1953, Pauline wrote, Quote, Mother woke me this morning and started lecturing me before I was properly awake. She has brought up the worst possible threat now. She said that if my health did not improve, I could never see the Holmes again. The thought is too dreadful. Life would be unbearable without Deborah. I ran Deborah and told her of the threat. I wish I could die. That is not an idle or temporary impulse. I have decided over the last two or three weeks that it would be the best thing that could happen altogether and the thought of death is not fearsome. Let's remember that Deborah is the name of the alter ego of Juliet in the kingdom of Borovnia. So she's going to refer to Juliet as Deborah in her diaries from now on. 
it's on February the 13th of 1954, that Pauline starts writing about the idea that if her mother were dead, and her father as well, things would be way easier to her. Quote, she is most unreasonable. I also overheard her making insulting remarks about Mrs. Hume while I was ringing this afternoon. I am very glad because the Hume sympathize with me. It's nice to feel that adults realize what mother is. Dr. Hume is going to do something about it, I think. Why could not mother die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. Thousands. So why not mother and father too? Life is very hard. Close quote. So it's really sad because in reality, Pauline idealized, used to idealize the Huns, but they were very much worried, the same way as her parents were, about their relationship. But because of whatever social reason, they would be polite and kind to her. And it was, of course, probably because Pauline father was busy in his business that her mother was the one to be there discipline her and forbidding her to see Juliet unless she would put out some weight. So on February is when the girls start coming out with a new plan and the plan was basically to go to Hollywood to become starlets and to sell the rights of their story, the story of the kingdom of Borobnia, to the Hollywood uh, how can I say that? Production houses, movie studios. Exactly. And because famous and to be recognized by everybody, to get their geniuses recognized because they really believe they were geniuses. It's in February that they decide that they were going to start saving money for that Hollywood trip. On the 23rd of April of 1954, it's which Pauline writes that Deborah has rang her and told her that she found her mother, Mrs. Hilda Hume, in bed drinking tea, which is hilarious, <laughs> with another man, Walter Berry, whom was a former client of Hilda Hume because she was a marriage counselor. And this man was spending time in the Hume's family because he had fallen sick. They had offered him a place to stay. So what Hilda told her daughter is like uh, she and Walter Perry and her husband were living as a threesome. Or a semi-open relationship. Or a semi-open relationship. Fast forward a couple of months, we would know that the Humes were going to get a divorce. And there's another very important fact that Mr. Hume was fired. Uh, in his position as a rector of the Canterbury University. And their plans were for him to take Jonathan, his youngest son, with him to England, and that they would send Juliet to South Africa to live with one of her aunts. On the 24th of April of 1954, Pauline wrote, Such a huge amount has happened that we do not know where we are. Dr. Hume is the noblest and most wonderful person I have ever known of. But one thing, Deborah and I are sticking to through everything. We sink or swim together. On late April, 
Pauline writes once again about her plans or more like her suicidal thoughts and then she starts to flirt with the idea of getting rid of what she thinks is the obstacle of all her plan, like Juliet and her plans, which is her mother. On April the 13th, Pauline wrote, quote, I told Deborah of my intentions and she is rather worried but does not disagree violently. End of quote. According to the diaries and what their parents would say, the girls would spend the night out playing in the backyards or just writing and telling each other stories. And on June the 6th of 1954, Pauline wrote, quote, We went to sleep at 4.30 tomorrow morning after talking all night. We were discussing at first how we sometimes had a strange feeling that we had done what we were doing before. We realized why this was and why Deborah and I have such extraordinary telepathy and why people treat us and look at us the way they do and why we behave as we do. It is because we are mad. We are both stark, staring, raving mad. There is definitely no doubt about it and we are thrilled by the thought. So the girls came so far that not only they had the Kingdom of Porobnia and the Fourth World, but they have also rejected Catholicism and they had made their own religion which cons consisted on saints and gods that were all the best known actors of the era. That when we were watching the movie Heavenly Creatures, like the main one was the Italian opera singer Mario Lanza. And on June the 11th of 1954, Pauline would write that they went to the cinema and then they went back to either Juliet or Pauline's house and that the both girls reenact the way that the saints, that their favorite actors, would make love, which can lead us to the idea that the girls had sex, or what, what do you think about well, that, Well, we're in a, we're engaging in a form of sexual activity, regardless of whether they considered it romantic or, or not. On the 19th of June of 1954, Pauline wrote, quote, practically finish our books today and our main idea for the day was to moither mother. This notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. End of quote. So at this time, three days before the proper murder, Pauline was writing in her diary that she was going to murder her mother, Honora. Well, that's a pretty much good uh, indicative that it was a premeditated murder. Mm. Very much. And the fact that you know, three days ahead, she's already fantasizing about the ecstasy of committing the act. It's fairly uh, exemplary of premeditation. Incriminating, dare I said. Just a little bit. The 21st of June, Pauline wrote, quote, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. 
they were a run and we decided to use a rock in a stocking rather than a sandbank. We discussed the moider fully. I feel very keyed up as thought I were planning a surprise part. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write this in this diary, mother will be dead. How or yet how pleasing. End of quote. It was also the 21st that the girls decided on the weapon they would use to dispatch Pauline's mother. And each of them provided a component. Pauline provided the stocking and Juliet provided a half piece of brick that would act as the weight in the bludgeoning weapon. So on the 22nd of June of 1954, which was the day of the murder, Pauline wrote early on that morning. She entitled that piece of the diary as, quote, the day of the happy event. And she wrote, I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I feel very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have pleasant dreams, though I am about to rise. So literally maybe minutes before she left home. They did was a meeting with Juliet and they went to a tea room mm -hmm. in Victoria Park, in which they had tea with Honora. And after that, they went for a little walk. According to what they said afterwards, when they were interrogated by the police, Juliet had a small ring, like a f with a fantasy fake, um, like a, a a piece of theatrical jewelry with a large glass jewel. And Juliet would drop it. Like she would have dropped it in the ground. She would have uh, called Honora's attention on the piece of glass or rock on the floor and that's when Pauline strike her in the head multiple times with the brick. The theory was that it would only take one or two good thumps with the brick in the stocking, just like in the movies. However, the reality of this was quite different, as the girls found out. It was a very brutal and violent attack, according to the... Autopsy later on done on Honorashi had approximately 45 wounds and she was basically unrecognizable. Is that the word? Yep, unrecognizable English? by the end. And even her denture fell out of her mouth. It was um, beaten out of her mouth mm -hmm. think, with several bludgeon, bludgeon attacks. Defensive uh, wounds. Defensive also. wounds on her hands as well. I think they also blew out of the tip of one of her pinky fingers, mm. which would be like a defensive move, like putting your hands in your face or your head to prevent any mm. attack. And after that, the girls ran hysterically back to the tea room when they had been drinking tea before. And Pauline was said to be screaming, help, mommy has been seriously injured. She's dead and they were covered in blood and mud. So, 
We have to a lot to unfold this, don't we, Chris? We do indeed, very much. Where do we begin? Should we go back then? Should we proceed to the judge or can we make a bit of um, speculation on what the girls were thinking about that time? Well, we should probably look at what the girls were were thinking and um, you know what what drove them to make the make the choice they did in the end. Um, so, how was Christchurch at, at that time? Well, Chris? Christchurch in the nineteen fifties was somewhat of a boom town. It acted as the economic centre of the South Island of New Zealand and with a massive hinterland of agricultural uh, cropping like wheat, barley, sheep and other plenty of other agricultural products which were primarily being sent to the rebuilding nation of United Kingdom after World War II. There was no shortage of work available, and the the town of well the the city of New Zealand, sorry, the city of Christchurch, was New Zealand's second largest city after Auckland, and at the time it, this prosperity drew a lot of uh, a lot of people to the to the area, and it saw its role in the Commonwealth as being a steadfast ally of England and a lot of people considered New Zealand a lot of New Zealanders consider themselves loyal subjects of of the crown and and of the queen and they would do everything in their power to uphold the values and the etiquette and social mores of England as such a lot of the strains and stresses of social life were dictated by what would be considered proper English values and morals. People would say that Christchurch was as English as a muffin. Living there was even maybe better than living in the United Kingdom? Like the standard was better well, or as good? Well, I think in some cases it might be better. The fact that it hadn't been touched by the ravages of war and that the, the economy, the post-war economy, which was primarily for the South Island based on agriculture, was booming. So there were plenty of, uh, there were plenty, there was plenty of work at the time. And because of that, there was, it wasn't a case of, of social instability, more social consolidation they were they were certain they knew who 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 they were as as and then drew a lot of their identity from being british and members of the british empire and the high school where the girls were sent like even though pauline was from a more working class family the christchurch girls high school was very how do you say, got a very good reputation. It had a very good reputation and is considered to be, as far as New Zealand schools go, is considered to be a private school. And one of the other things that made it over to Christchurch from England, which is said to have been one of the most class-conscious cities in 
New Zealand at the time and whether that's followed up into today's present is that the English social structure also made it over with people being very conscious of their standing within society along the lines of what you could call the English model. People were very aware of it and were, in a lot of cases, proud to uphold those traditions and be seen to fit into various aspects of the community along those lines. So, domestication. It was pretty much evident for the police once they got in the place that Honora's death was no accident. That was basically the girl's version. The girl's version was that she had slipped and hit her head with a rock. And, well, the crime scene showed pretty much the opposite. Was the um, weapon used for murdering her found right away? Well, during the attack, during the course of the attack, the brick itself worked its way out of the stocking and actually was flung down the embankment of the hill that they were walking on. And eventually, soon after the the police were called, they, they'd indeed find the murder weapon. However, initially after the attack, because of the age of the girls and their apparent distress, they were taken home and released into the custody of their their respective parents. However, it wasn't long after that the police re- returned and took the girls into custody for further questioning, which later, under interrogation and questions, the girls did admit that they had murdered Honara. It was Pauline first. I believe that the police, they asked Pauline who had attacked her mother, and she said initially that it was her, and only her. She didn't include Juliette, but Juliette was called for interrogation as well, and at the beginning, she denied taking place, uh, partaking in the attack. She just said that she had heard a noise, some screaming and like an arguing. And then when she turned around, Honora was on the floor, um, bloodied. And afterwards, she would say that, well, that she took place in the beating, like she actually uh, held Honora against the floor while Pauline was beating her. Again, the girls assumed because of their love of silver screen movies that they would go and watch that an attack of that of of that magnitude would subdue a person within one or two blows of a heavy object. However, the reality was very different. They just couldn't keep up with the story of the, her dad being an accident and. It's uh, several months before uh, she was murdered that Pauline would write in her diary that she intended to make her murder look accidental. So that's maybe the only time in which it seems like maybe the girls weren't so smart as they really believed because it was uh, particularly valiant. There was no way that the police could think that someone would get so injured with just one uh, one slipped yeah slipped 40 plus times <laughs> 40 plus time into a rock yes 
However, uh, it wasn't long after that the police returned when they were taking the girls into custody that they acquired some of the personal belongings of both girls, in particular Pauline's diary, which we're using today as a major source of reference. Did Juliet have a diary? She did indeed. However, her father had the uh, foresight and, uh, however, I don't think was ever really held to account for it, of of ordering their gardener to burn Juliet's diary and several other of her personal journals and other evidence which may have led police to indict her, which may have led police to increase their accusations and and aid in the evidence against her in the murder of Anara. But at the end, both of them were convicted. It was on August of that same year. In the opinion of two psychiatrists that were the defense, they tried to play the insanity defense in their case, and the psychiatrists, uh, several psychiatrists spoke to the girls, but they were Reginald Medilcott and Francis Bennett, who thought that the girls held contempt for the Bible and believed in a fourth world paradise. And that was an evidence of their insanity. The jury were told that the pair, the diet, the girls, thought that they had the moral right to kill Honora and that the girls suffered from, quote, paranoia, delusions of grandeur and delusions of ecstasy. Each affects the other and aggravates the process of the disease, close quote. But the prosecutor, the prosecutor, the Crown, which would be the state, had a very different opinion of them. He maintained that the psychiatrists had contradicted their own evidence under cross-examination because the things like there was premeditation in the crime and I think that was the biggest uh, incriminatory in... How do you say? Yeah, the, the, the biggest piece of evidence that they could use to incriminate the girls was the fact that there was this premeditated aspect to the murder, which mm-hmm. was largely proven by Pauline's, Pauline's diaries. diaries. In the Crown prosecutor, prosecutor opinion, this, quote, plainly was a cold, callously committed and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent and perfectly sane girls. They are not incurably insane. Matsumission is they are incurably bad. Close quote. So they were both sent to different prisons. They were sentenced to... I don't know if it was an original, an original five-year sentence, but they both made five years mm-hmm. in prison. Initially, the girls were held for the sentence of the governor's pleasure, which largely means however long the state decides to keep them there. In this case, because of... It was such a brutal and shocking murder and the country and the judiciary weren't really sure of how to treat it that they would 
ascertain the 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 guilt and the condition of the girls, particularly because of their young age, and it could be said of as well of their social stature that they might decide later on that the girls would so the the so the crown would decide to keep them potentially indefinitely or after a suitable time of review uh, after a suitable time a review would be held and grant the girls freedom or other conditional release which they did after five years which after which time they considered the girls to be rehabilitated and have to have paid for the crime because initially neither of them showed remorse of the crime Juliet was a bit more hesitant she didn't confess right away to the crime but it was after those years that they their testimonies that they realized that what they did was wrong so Pauline was sent to Paparua prison that it's near Christchurch and Juliet and this is curious was initially sent to the maximum prison at Mount Eden in Auckland and then she was sent to a different prison near Wellington and the first two months that Juliet spent in prison were in solitary confinement she was also forced to do physical labor for two weeks and that's when she physically collapsed and then she worked in the same prison sewing uniforms because it seems like in the opinion of the jury she was the dominant in the diet and after doing the research i am not a hundred percent sure whether she was the dominant in this she's definitely considered to be the more gregarious and outgoing mm -hmm. and extroverted of the two girls however in this dynamic that may not have been the case what are your thoughts well it's really really weird because it seems like they were kind of the opposites of opposite sides of the same coin i don't know if that yeah. expression exists in english because uh, juliet was told to be they were both like very arrogant but juliet was more outspoken and it was very she was very remarkable because she had this cut glass polish british accent and she would be kind of overwhelming why pauline had a more like a demure yeah more introverted she was um, well after what we read in the diaries i don't know if we could diagnose her with depression but it's pretty much evident that she was uh, suffering a great deal whatever she wasn't with Juliet and Juliet was the same because that's what their own parents would say but um, well there is the fact that uh, Pauline was suffering from bulimia and that's not something that we see in Juliet it's like uh, being apart from the, the distress that would cause her being apart from Pauline would make her turn into her mother and be, according to Hilda's word, quote-unquote, needy or clingy. So that's why also what at the beginning their own parents encouraged her relationship because Juliet seemed to be very demanding of her parents' 
attention, which remind me of all the separation uh, periods that she spent during her childhood because of her illness. And not to mention the reliance she would have felt for her parents during her time in in the London Blitz, when such a traumatic time, a child needing a parent and becoming quite closely attached to a parent, and then having the experience of being forcefully separated from the parent, although for legitimate reasons of health, during such formative years, and not clearly the parents not allowing uh, a not contact. Not receiving the nurturing mm. of a parent. I, I was watching a YouTuber discuss this case, and this YouTuber made like a 20-minute something rambling about how Hilda was this very extroverted and outgoing and a socialite woman and kind of uh, trying to picture her like a detached mother. But I'm actually thinking how uh, parenting was at that time. And I'm also thinking that uh, the fact that they were from a higher class and they were academics probably took part on that. I I don't know if you share my opinion that I feel like uh, maybe among the upper classes, the showing of a Affection, it's not something, or at those times, because this was like more than 50 years ago, wasn't something normal or it I think wasn't. Open yeah. signs of affection was okay for very small children, but once children grow up a little bit, once they sort of reached their teens, that, that closeness of affection and coddling, particularly from the mother, were, would be uh, frowned upon in English society and particularly in the upper class uh, who not all but many of many of whom would have servants or nannies or governesses to see to the upbringing of the children and have that 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 level and or, or definitely the air of of detachment from their children yeah it was said that they were called parents whatever that means that they weren't particularly demonstrative and it seems like the girls were exactly the opposite it's like Julie and Pauline, and they would hold hands and kiss each other. Let's analyze the insanity <laughs> defense mm. that they made. This, um, because I'm doing the profiling here. Yeah. It's it's what I find more found. I find what I think it's more... Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you. That's the word that I was looking for. This case is often taken as an example of uh, folie adieu, I don't know French, but I understand that translated means uh, madness, the madness of two of madness of two. My reference for doing the, our reference for doing the psychological profile, it's a health counselor that is from the US. He has a YouTube channel. His name is Dr. Grande. It's very good, fascinating, um, very compassionate, but it needs to be. So I was checking what he says about the uh, folie adieu. This, it's, uh, it's not a disorder as such, it's more like a construct, more like an explanation of how psychosis can be shared or transmitted from one person to another or be happening at the same time in more than one person. Foliadieu is also known as a shared psychotic disorder or induced psychosis or psychosis by association. So what's 
the idea about Folly Adieu. We had uh, most of the time a primary partner, that is the inducer, that according to the case studies, most of the time suffers from either schizophrenia or a major, major mood disorder with psychosis. Major mood disorder could be depression or bipolar disorder most of the time. While we have the second or the associate or submissive partner. There are also cases of folia due of more people, but most of the time it's two people. And the thing is like basically the two people that are taking part of folia due are suffering from psychosis. They suffer from a split from reality. And most of the time, the most common types of delusion in this construct are either persecutory or mystical. Mystical would mean that the people that are suffering the psychosis believe that they are special, they are exceptional, or they have some mission from an upper power that it's just ruling their behavior. So thinking about that and knowing what you know about the diaries, we were listening to the author of So Brilliantly Clever, a New Zealand author. Do you remember? <laughs> he was he was doing a he was doing a chat in the Dunedin library, and in his opinion, uh, initially was Juliet the more dominant in the relationship because she had this extroversion of of herself. But then it was slowly Pauline, the one that kind of took the lead because uh, she was basically the one that was suffering from the well. We don't have Juliet's diary but she explicitly would say that she had suicidal thoughts and the idea of being apart from Juliet or Deborah mm. how she would call her was absolutely inconceivable and it seems like it seemed I am not blaming her like I don't think there was like this manipulative mm -hmm. relationship because we have read of uh, different uh, crimes that were committed by partners most of the times are like a heterosexual relationship and the male partner is most of the time very abusive and it's just ruling and saying what the other partner says. And I don't feel that it was like that. I feel like um, Pauline was very vulnerable and if Juliet left, they would both suffer because Juliet would suffer when she was apart from her. But it's I kind of feel like she was the one that had more to lose in this because by being friends with Juliet, she would have uh, access and contact to this, the high class that Juliet belonged. Uh, she idolized uh, the Hunes mm -hmm. initially. Well, after they know about Mrs. Hume's affair, her sympathy kind of turned to Mr. Hume. But initially she would say that they were heavenly people, that they were, well, they were refined, they were intellectuals. And the thing is, like, the girls were very smart. Mm. The girls definitely did see themselves as intellectuals as well, whether, and, and to a degree, what they identified themselves and as, according to the as genius. Yeah, as genius or genie. Mm -hmm. They had a extra part of the brain. And even the psychiatrist that would interrogate her, I think it was Juliet that mm. it was said that had a 120 of IQ. That's right. She scored incredibly highly um, in an IQ test that was done at some point uh, during the trial. Yeah, and it was said that Pauline had an uh, 
definitely intelligence above the average of her own age. So, to be fair to them, they were exceptional. They were quite exceptionally intelligent and and extremely creative. Oh, yeah. So creative. People. (laughs) And the fact that they were put together through their due to physical illness and skipping physical education gym classes really, you know, did set them a happy or, you know, an an unhappy coincidence to set them together where they could ignite the, uh, ignite the spark of uh, creativity and, and, and and find their intelligent, you know, appreciate each other's intellect, which would then lead to their intensely close and dependent friendship. Pauline would say that no one could fully appreciate their intelligence. And I think that kind of sad how much contempt she felt about her family because it seems like they were a pretty average family in the journals, the newspapers of the time. There's the transcription of the examination of Mrs. Hume and uh, she as a witness would say that Pauline would say it once that her mother would have physically disciplined her. I remember Mm-mm. reading that. But otherwise, it didn't seem like they were like terrible parents. I think you told me that maybe she was under under um, stimulated. Oh, absolutely. I think due to the the social positioning of their family, which was comfortably middle class and aspiring, that her family uh, that she would be expected to follow in the family footsteps and unfortunately at the time there wasn't a, the avenues for expression and progress for women was still fairly limited to uh, to working in what we could what we would call the 1950s traditional female career paths so nurses secretaries typists and cleaners, jobs down those lines. It wasn't until the 60s and, and the 70s that the career prospects for women were vastly opened up due to the women's liberation uh, movements. However, before that, it was either very exceptionally talented people who would rise up through the ranks or would sub- subversively work their way up through the ranks like some of the uh like like women who would who would be working in the war office or or other government organizations themselves being brilliant mathematicians but would work in, in the office as officially a secretary however would be key advisors to the uh largely male management but whose efforts would be absolutely crucial to to particularly in science. However, the ex- the other exception was upper class mobility, which would see women from the more upper class families being allowed to uh, take up roles in traditionally male careers and exercise their 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 power and their their privilege to access higher education and also gain entry into jobs and could essentially use the currency of 
prestige to have other men take them seriously in those roles, or at least take their family's heritage seriously. And I believe that's what Pauline disliked about her own family and her own her own background was that it had no power to help her fulfill her dreams of being and someone of you know, a member of the intelligentsia and that or she a saw star or a Hollywood star. Why not? And she saw the Holmes as being a being able to provide that route for for their daughter, Juliet, and that they could also assist her as they, as she saw herself as their, as their foster daughter, and that they would allow her a route into a new life of one that she deserved and one that she was naturally, naturally destined to fulfill. In which she would flourish, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Because the girl's initial idea, once they find out that the Humes were getting a divorce, was to convince them to take Pauline with Juliet to South Africa. And after that, they would do this fantastic trip to Hollywood and became became famous and rich. It really felt like she felt like everybody around her were dull and boring and unrefined. I'm talking about mm. Pauline, of course. And I think as well that that led into some of their risk-taking, particularly with acquiring the means and money to facilitate their, their flight to Los Angeles. It's... What, what can you... What can I say? I think that it's um, just thinking about how how much anger she held against her mother. It's uh, really sad. It's a sad case because, first of all, a person was brutally murdered. And it seems like in thinking about Pauline, because we have her diaries, and partially on Juliet, uh, she just was completely convinced that her mother was the main and only obstacle and the truth is like uh, the Holmes were as worried that the Parkers for their relationship, but for whatever reason, they would never, maybe of some sort of English... Well, I think the... the... Or upper class, like um, demeanor or gentleness, they wouldn't tell her. But in reality, do you think that maybe they kind of uh, Mr. Hoon maybe encouraged or maybe left the fate of Pauline to her mother? Well, I think Mr. Holm definitely didn't discourage the fantasy that the, well, the, yeah, the fantasy that the girls would be able to move to Hollywood. And in one case, I think he didn't want to be the villain mm-hmm. and upset his daughter in a time when he, when she was particularly... Vulnerable. Vulnerable, but also very sympathetic to him after he after the discovery his, of the, the affair. Of discovery of the affair and the divorce proceedings, the separation proceedings. So on the one hand, I think he just didn't want to be the bad guy, essentially, mm-hmm. knowing that Honara would be the one to say, no, forget about it. No way. 
to hmm. Pauline and she would take up the role of the villain and thereby allow Mr. Holm to... Just run... I wouldn't say run in a sense. Like, I'm, we're not taking blames, I'm just... No, but allow him to get away with without invoking the wrath of his daughter and the disapproval and, yeah, of his daughter. Yeah, just being the good guy or being the sympathetic guy. Mm. So what happened with our two girls once they left prison five years after? Well, pretty much straight away, Juliet was whisked away to Italy and reunited with her father. Mm -hmm. And from there she drops off the the map, so to speak, and isn't heard of again until much, much, much later when she... With a new name that is Anne Perry, that for those who are fans of the black novel crime literature, they would know her because she's a best-selling author and it's still alive. And so is Pauline, but with a different name. Mm -hmm. She changed her name to Hilary Nathan. That's right. And she was around... After her release, she stayed in New Zealand for some time. However, she moved to... After um, after her release, she spent some time in New Zealand and... Studied to become a librarian. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, she moved to England. Yeah, where she where she was found some years later to be living in Kent, which is which is in the south of England. So she moved to Kent, uh, said to have moved to Kent, and was discovered there by some particularly impressive investigative journalism carried out by a New Zealand reporter in the mid-90s. She had become a devout Catholic and she she's there both still alive. Uh, Hilary, that is Pauline, teaches children how to ride horses and Anne Perry became internationally famous with her books and adaptations she lived for a while in the United States, mm -hmm. just like they once wished with her best friend, but she now sleeps in England, in Scotland, actually. That's right, in the Orkney Islands. However, Pauline, would, or Hilary, would later move also to the north of Scotland. So, mm -hmm. in actual fact, they're not that far from each other, though it has been stated irrefutably by Anne Perry that they have, since the release, never reunited and never met. And they have not, and as far as she knows, and as far as she is concerned, they will never meet again. They have no intention of reuniting. And in a documentary made about Anne Perry, that is Anne Perry Interiors, she's, uh, well, at some point, the issue of the murder comes to be discussed and what does she what is her what does she say about because what people think is like they had a romantic relationship um the murder well she said that they definitely had an obsessive relationship but there was absolutely nothing sexual mm -hmm. in regards to their relationship and i i believe that 
while inhabiting their characters, and they they were said to have role played mm-hmm. the intimate scenes between various characters. That it was, you know, while sexual in nature was still disembodied through and, and not necessarily them initiating actions themselves rather than deep, deep, deep role play. She would say that there was nothing sexy about it, which is a funny way of saying it. Mm. But her nowadays testimony, she claims that she always knew that what they were doing was wrong, Mm. that she was just following through with Pauline's plan because she was honestly scared that she would commit suicide, that nowadays she knows that what Pauline was suffering was from bulimia. I think she says that... she could smell the 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 odor of vomit Mm. and that she was skin and bones and she just felt like she owed her loyalty because she Mm. had stick with her when she was uh, when she was sick Mm -hmm. or tuberculosis whether that's true or not i I guess we we go with what she says or we can debate that amongst ourselves however all reports well However, reports of the time, and and also if we're going by Pauline's diary, would suggest that they were at one time very, very deeply immersed in, as you've said, the what could be considered a folly adieu, particularly mm-hmm. living in their own fantasy world and coming up with their own entire religion or religious beliefs and the shed hallucination or... or um, they just built a world that was much better and pleasant than the reality that they had to live. And they were allowed and encouraged to be in each other's company and indulge in these in the, in this Games constructed and world and <laughs> constructed adventures, and that they were nourishing each other's intellect and creativity because no one else could really do it. Yeah, perhaps. I mean. It's not like we are excusing them, but it, they were really synced in a rapture with uh, the real world. What a, we feel it's very sad. It's uh, well, the insanity plea was rejected. They were they were well taken. Mm-hmm. They were sentenced guilty of the crime. But I was thinking that uh, even if. I don't know because the those doctors that spoke they were they didn't talk about folly adieu but they were really nailing the point of what the girl's mentality was at that time. I think in that sense uh, it seemed or it was mm-hmm. maybe very likely that they have a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. even if they had been sent to a mental institution. It's very likely that they wouldn't have gotten like the real treatment that they deserve because it it wasn't about the the relationship mm-hmm. as in being a homosexual relationship. It was the delusion and the attachment issue and, and also, the rejection of the reality. Mm, and also, yeah, exactly. Some of the what you could consider shared psychosis. Mm-hmm. The thing when we were listening to uh, uh, Dr. Todd Grande talking about folie adieu and mystical illusions, in his professional opinion, um, he believes that there are cases that they, most of the cases, lead to violence, and they are, um, we're not saying that 
mentally ill people are violent. No. But in this construct, it's um, very common to see very violent crime. Especially not, when the the not because the people that they are suffering are sadist or evil or malignant or manipulative. The things that when a person eats of a few people are on a mystical illusion, they truly believe that they are exceptional beings. Therefore, the rules of this world don't apply to them and the limits for this world don't apply for them. And um, the separation of the dyad, it's basically what puts uh, the delusion on danger. It's like being separated, that's what is going to split the world. And that so they, they, all, they almost act defensively to protect their... And they would do anything mm. to protect it, which I think it's what they the girls did mm. at the end. It's also interesting when we were watching the talk that the author of the book... So Brilliantly Clever by Peter Graham. ...was giving at the library. It had some pictures of um, Hilary, Pauline, mm -hmm. uh, of her house. She lived on a, a fairly remote rural farmhouse... And kept, by all accounts, kept to herself um, when she wasn't teaching kids to ride uh, horses. But she left extremely quickly, packed up and left overnight when it was discovered her true identity. And some of the th some of the artwork that she left behind in the form of murals and almost stained glass window type pictures would indicate that perhaps it it was still on her mind the the fantasy, the fantasy and Baronia. Barovnia. And and Barovnia and and the fourth world were still things that she would reminisce about or that she truly had never gotten over, as would be evidenced by some of the pictures of knights and divine priestesses and and you know ascending angels and goddesses who would bear striking resemblances to both her and Juliet. A blonde girl and a brunette girl. One, one particular picture um, denoted uh, the brunette girl with uh, scars on her left leg, which one eagle-eyed uh, crowd member would, mm -hmm. would point out in, in one, of the, one of these book signing lectures. To close... Would you like to read a piece of epic poetry, please? I would be pleased to. Well, this is a poetry that was found on Pauline Sparker's 1953 diary. Okay. This piece is called The Ones That I Worship. There are living amongst two dutiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. They'd be the pride and joy of any nation. You cannot know, nor yet try to guess the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honoured that they would deign to rule. 
and above us the goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two, with the adorning love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle one must feel, that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes, with enemies for fuel, icy scorn glitters in the grey eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools? They will not realise the wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes. And these wonderful people are you and I. That was the Parker Hunt Keynes, the heavenly creatures from Christchurch, New Zealand. Thank you for listening to the second episode of A History of Evil Men. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can find us on social media. Our Instagram is A History of Evil Men. That's all in one word, so just search for that. Our Facebook is A History of Evil Men, a true crime podcast. And if you'd like to email us, our address is a history of evil men at gmail.com. No spaces in that, that's all one word. And if you'd like to support us, our Patreon is a history of evil men. Same as before, all one word. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>